Mike Clark, uh, one of the elders and one of the pastors here. And, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago, Dave Huffman asked me if on this date I would uh, do a, uh, a God bless America speech. And uh, he and I both knew uh, what uh, was meant by that. It was, it was, would I talk in a way that would acknowledge the contributions of the Lord and the blessings of the Lord uh, on this country while at the same time bringing glory to him. And I was ready to do that, and then the events of the past couple of weeks from the Supreme Court struck, and, you know, I just about completely threw away everything that I thought I was going to say. And just then, I think the Lord just kind of spoke to me, and he said, you know what, we need to be reminded again of what was right. You see, this country got off to the right start. We have a solid foundation. We know how to treat one another. We know right from wrong. The issue is that right now we've come up with a recent decision that leaves many of us not really knowing what to do next. Two years ago, uh, the Supreme Court took on a case, uh, uh, it was the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. And uh, when they got through dealing with that and reaching a conclusion, it was very, very convoluted, and they said, you know what, the more we get thinking about this, marriage is not a federal issue, marriage is a state issue, and so the Defense of Marriage Act, we're not going to implement that. That's, 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 that's gone. Two years later, the exact same nine people heard another case about marriage. And you know what their conclusion was? You know what? Marriage isn't a state issue. Marriage is a federal issue, and here's what we're going to do. Say, well, that, this is where we find ourselves, and we need to go back to our roots and remember what the Lord has told us. There was a famous pastor in, uh, in Nazi Germany in World War II. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he died, he died a martyr for his faith. And he said many things that were very, very soul-stirring. But one of the things that he said, he said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Teddy Roosevelt was a very prominent citizen, both in New York and out west, long before he ever became president. And on one July 4th gathering out in uh, uh, the Dakotas, they asked Teddy Roosevelt to give a July 4th speech. And so here is just a little bit of what Teddy Roosevelt said on July the 4th, 1886. He says, quote, So it is particularly incumbent on us here today to act throughout our lives as to leave our children a heritage for which we will receive their blessing and not their curse. If you fail to work in public life as well as in private for honesty 
and uprightness and virtue if you condone vice because the vicious man is smart or if you in any other way cast your weight into the scales in favor of evil, you are just so far corrupting and making less valuable the birthright of your children. It is not what we have that will make us a great nation. It's the way in which we use it. A famous radio broadcaster, now dead, his name was Paul Harvey, and he used to come on every afternoon and he would do a little segment on the radio for about five minutes called The Rest of the Story. And he would take some uh, event in history that we all thought we knew something about and he would tell you more in the way of background to make you better understand and appreciate that event. And so we're going to do just a little bit, a couple of those things this morning. And before we go too much further, let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Our Father, we do celebrate your goodness to this nation. Lord, we gather today really not to honor this country, but to honor you. And yet acknowledging your goodness to this country, acknowledging how you've worked, acknowledging our purposes does bring glory to your name. And so help us to see your goodness and your mercy as we discuss our spiritual heritage and future, I pray in Christ's name, amen. So uh, a quick rest of the story for you. Uh, go back in your mind to 1774, Central Massachusetts. A little map of Massachusetts coming up. Central Massachusetts, right in the middle, 1774. Some judges, some British judges, were walking there from uh, their place where they were staying to a courthouse in a town called, little town called Worcester, Massachusetts, and they were getting ready to hear cases against farmers who had failed to pay some new British taxes that had just been imposed. And as they came around a corner to go to the courthouse, suddenly they were met by 4,632 angry farmers from all around Worcester and the little towns surrounding it. And they made those judges proclaim at the top of their lungs that they would not enforce the British law. And in fear of their life, that's exactly what those English judges did, except they didn't have a public address system. So they made the farmers, every, they made the judges every hundred yards stop and at the top of their lungs repeat exactly the same oath until they had reached the end of the mile-long line of angry farmers on both sides. And then those farmers escorted the judges to the edge of town and told them, never come back. Well, fast forward now a year later. Now we're at 1775. Back into Boston, back on, back on the East Coast. 
Now, we know that the British marched to Lexington and Concord, and, and that's how the American Revolution started. Who knows why the British marched to Lexington and Concord? Anybody know why they marched out there? Why'd they do that? Why'd they do it? Yeah, for the guns, that, that's part of the answer, right, for the guns that were there, for the, for the, for the munitions that were being stored, any, any, anything else? Anybody remember? Okay, well, a second reason was they thought that both John Hancock and Samuel Adams were at Lexington, and they hoped that not only would they capture the arms that were there, but they would also capture two of the biggest patriot leaders. But now, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. You see, the British did not take kindly to the fact that they were thrown out of Worcester in 1774. That stuck very hard in their pride. And so uh, General Gage, a British general in Boston, he sent two spies back to Worcester to see if, in fact, they had arms and if they could capture them and disarm those people who had thrown them out a year before. So the two British spies came back and they reported to General Gage and they said, if you send 10,000 British soldiers to Worcester, they will all be dead before they come back to Boston because that's how ornery those people in Worcester are. <laughs> and so Gage swallowed his British pride and instead of sending 10,000 men to their death in Worcester, he sent 700 of them to Lexington to do the next best thing. Well, Worcester is my hometown. That's where I grew up and the towns surrounding it are where I played in the woods and so that's, that's uh, one of the things that gets me fired up about this time of year. Another little rest of the story for you. You know, we celebrate, uh, we celebrate uh, the birth of our nation, the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th of each year. And that's true. That is the date of the Declaration of Independence. However, independence was declared by Congress from Britain. Independence from Britain was declared by Congress on July the 2nd my son's birthday, and John Adams wrote down to his wife, he wrote a letter to her, he said, July 2nd will go down every year in history is the date of independence. There'll be fireworks and bands playing and proclamations. So you see, I kind of get my enthusiasm for this week kind of honestly. Uh, I grew up in a town that threw the British out. My son was born this week, and so I say, hoorah! And I kind of, I got to get that out of my system. So there's a little bit of the rest of the story for you. But I want to eliminate any doubt in anybody's mind. We know that this country was founded on godly principles, and that's true. But it's so much more. And so I want to take you back 100 years before the Declaration of Independence. And I want to read from you. Obviously, I don't have time to do it all. I want to read selected extracts for you from eight founding state documents, the earliest documents in each one of these states. And I can just read just a little bit for you. I'm going to read kind of fast, but you'll, you'll get the message. 
This is, by the way, this is from a book called The Myth of Separation by a guy by the name of David Barton. Absolutely fantastic book to buy and read up on the origins of this country. Well, here we go. In 1606, 1606, a charter was obtained from King James I for a permanent settlement in the New World of Virginia. The charter revealed that the colonists declared reason for traveling to the New World was, and I quote, propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness. Three years later, 1609, another charter was granted to Virginia, quote, because their principal effect for which we can desire or expect of this action is the conversion of the people in those parts of the world unto the true worship of God and the Christian religion. The pilgrims arrived in America in Plymouth, uh, uh, in, Plymouth at, uh, in November 1620. And before they got off the boat, they, they signed the Mayflower Compact. It was the first plan of government that was written solely in the United States. And it said, quote, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Nine years later, the first charter of Massachusetts reflected about the same goals. It says it was granted so that, quote, knowledge and obedience of the only true God and Savior of mankind and the Christian faith, which is our royal intention, is the principal end of this plantation, later become known as the Plymouth Plantation. So the Puritans, the Puritans arrived about a decade after the Pilgrims. And in their journey to America on the way, their leader, a guy by the name of John Winthrop, he authorized the work that he called a model of Christian charity. This is uh, their original founding document. And he says in here, quote, We are a company of professing our sole fellow members of Christ, knit together by this bond of love, we are entered into covenant with him for this work. And, and Winthrop warned that since they were declaring their Christian faith, there would be an awesome responsibility resting on them. So let's move a little bit closer to home. 1632, the Charter of Maryland, issued by King Charles, described Lord Baltimore and his goals for the colony, quote, being animated with a laudable and pious zeal for extending the Christian religion. The Quakers and other groups, they settled in North Carolina in 1653. And several years later, in 1662, they obtained a charter because the colonists were, quote, excited with laudable and pious zeal for the propagation of the Christian religion. Well, yeah, that sounds familiar. They got, that, they got that kind of stuff from Massachusetts earlier. For the propagation of the Christian faith in parts of America only inhabited by people who have no knowledge of Almighty God. A couple more. The Charter of Rhode Island, 1663, said, quote, they are pursuing with peace and loyal minds their sober, serious, and religious intentions in the holy Christian faith. 1643, 
a whole bunch of uh, New England states got together and they signed what was called the New England Confederation from the document itself. Quote, we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last one, 1681, a Quaker minister by the name of William Penn was given a land grant in between the state of New York and Maryland, came to be called Pennsylvania, obviously, and William Penn wrote his frame of government, and it says, and I quote, to make and establish such laws as shall best preserve true Christian and civil liberty in all opposition to unchristian practices. So the rules in Pennsylvania were very simple. Whatever was Christian was legal, and whatever wasn't Christian was not legal. Uh, last one. All right, 1731, 100 settlers moved to Georgia. And what did they do on their arrival? They got off the boat, they bent down, they kissed the ground, they kneeled and they prayed, and they stated their object was to make Georgia a religious colony. And so they invited two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, two of the best-known preachers in America at the time, and then they went one step further and they invited the best-known preacher in all of America at the time, uh, George Whitfield, to come to Georgia and to serve as their chaplains. This is our, this is our heritage. So let's eliminate any doubt about why this country came into being. See, that's why God has been able to be so generous to us is because we got off to a good start. Now look, we're a nation of sinners. We're a nation of people that we lose our way, both individually and sometimes collectively along the way, but we need to come back to our roots. And I'm afraid that unless we get a spiritual revival that starts with me, it starts with you, it goes from there. If we don't get a spiritual revival in this country starting very, very, very soon, then we're going to be very close to God's judgment. Our, our federal, our state, and our local officials, they keep making uh, uh, court decisions, passing federal laws, passing local ordinances that essentially say, God, get out of our business. Leave us alone. And I'm really afraid that oh, one day very soon, God's going to say, if that's the way you want it, okay. And when that happens, we're going to be in really, really bad shape. We have to stand up. We have to do what's right. We have to take the unpopular stance because the heritage for our children and our children's children really is at stake. We've, we've got to stand up and make a U-turn now. I really would. I'd love to spend another couple of weeks talking more about our spiritual background, the founding principles of our country, but I haven't got time to do it. I, I wanted to give uh, our son, Matt, a chance to do a, a better job at this than I have. So just a, a brief introduction. 
Uh, Matt was uh, virtually one of the very, very first audiovisual people at South Potomac. When, we, uh, when our audiovisual system was a little single screen on a tripod and an overhead projector, Matt was a seven-year-old who would uh, sit and put uh, transparencies on and off the so, uh, so people could sing songs uh, at the church. Uh, Matt was in the uh, original Sunday school group uh, long before our beloved Miss Kathy uh, came to lead us, so uh, Matt's, uh, Matt's been with us since uh, the very founding days of the church. Right now, uh, Matt attended uh, Liberty University and graduated from uh, Liberty's uh, law school. He's a member of the bar in both Virginia and Alabama. He's currently a staff attorney for probably the most famous state judge in all of America, uh, Judge Roy Moore, who is the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama. His name's been in the paper quite a bit in the past few years. And most importantly, Matt is a man of God, and Margot, my wife, and I are very proud of and grateful for his walk with the Lord. So Matt, would you come on up and minister to us? Good morning, South Potomac. <laughs> Y'all, thank you so much for the opportunity to come up here and speak to you today. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really honored. Uh, Dad, thank you for that way too kind introduction. Said I could do a better job than he could, with no pressure, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, it is so good to, to be up here with you guys today. And, and part of the reason I feel so honored to be here is that this is my home church. Uh, like Dad talked about. I live in Alabama now, but I was, I was born and, and raised here, and uh, I'm convinced that part of the reason why I, I was so blessed to get off to such a good start is because I had a church that did its job. Um, I think outside of my personal relationship with the Lord and my relationship with my family, uh, this church was probably one of the single biggest uh, influential factors in my life when I was growing up, and uh, you guys, I, I really feel like you did your job, and you've done so much good for me over the years, and it's my honor to be up here today and you know, just repay a little bit of that debt that I, uh, that I owe to you guys. So thank you guys for letting me speak to you. I love you, and, uh, and, and I'm excited. So, um, Well, my dad talked a few minutes ago about uh, what life was like in colonial America and how with uh, many of the uh, colonial charters, there was very explicit Christian language in there, and a lot of the settlers came for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And that's awesome, but how many of you guys have heard that, okay, yeah, you had groups like the Puritans and the Pilgrims that settled America, they were very Christian, but come on, Christianity got us the Salem witch trials, the Enlightenment got us the Declaration of Independence, and, and, and yeah, fine, the original settlers might have been very Christian, but by the time, you know, we got to signing the Declaration of Independence, you know, many of the founding fathers were deists. They kind of believed that, you know, God created the world and backed off and left it up to us. How many of you guys have heard stuff like that? I know I, know I have. Yeah, a good amount of hands here. So what I want to do today is take you back to the Declaration of Independence and, uh, like my dad just did, provide you with some more background information that tells you uh, the rest of the story and hopefully debunk some of these myths um, and my thesis here is that 
at the time that the Declaration was signed, which we just celebrated yesterday, uh, Christianity was still the philosophical king of the hill. You really want to look at a, a country whose revolution was based primarily on the Enlightenment. Look at France, all right? That was a secular uh, Enlightenment driving the whole thing. That brought you the guillotine, a lot of innocent bloodshed, or a lot of innocent blood that was shed, and uh, eventually a dictatorship that arose out of that. But with uh, our founding fathers, yes, there was some Enlightenment influence, but Christianity was still uh, the driving force in our country at the time. So I'm going to take you to the Declaration of Independence, which we just celebrated uh, yesterday. And and as my dad pointed out, um, America's real birthday is July 2nd, which also happens to be my birthday. So if you guys feel so inclined in the future to celebrate your patriotism in a new way, you can do it by sending me birthday presents. (laughs) You all buy that? Okay, I don't either. Just James says you have not because you asked not, so I thought it was worth a shot. I omitted the second half of that first, but we're not going to talk about that. All right. Um, but what I want to take you to is the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, which is, uh, which is up here now. And I want to highlight one very important phrase that I think, once we unpack it and explain what it means, uh, will show you really how uh, we were still very Christian at the time of our founding. Um, the first paragraph kicks off, and the Declaration is explaining to the rest of the world why we're breaking away from England. So as you can see on the screen... It reads as follows. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and a nature's God entitled them. That phrase is very important. We're going to come back to that in a second. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. All right, so paraphrased, the declaration says we're breaking away from England. We know the rest of the world is going to be watching us, so we want to explain why. But if you want the reason why in a nutshell, it's that highlighted phrase right there. It's because the laws of nature and of nature's God allow us to do this. And the rest of the declaration goes on to kind of unpack that and explain how it works. But I want to provide you with a little bit of background information um, about this phrase. This is not something that Thomas Jefferson just came up with when he was drafting the Declaration, and it wasn't something that was uh, new to the founders, just we're going to come up with a few magic words to throw in here. No, no, no. This phrase had been used, this phrase or some variation of it had been used for at least the last 200 years in England and in America, and back then people had a very specific understanding of what that meant. So I want to give you some background information and explain some of that. Um, I want to take you to a guy named Sir William Blackstone. Um, This is him right here. Uh, He was the second most cited thinker by our founders just after Montesquieu. Uh, Montesquieu kind of gave us uh, the checks and balances and separation of powers that we see in our Constitution. But for a lot of the substance of our law and what we believe, the founders drew very heavily on this guy. Um, he He was one of England's most famous judges. And by the way, aren't you glad that judges don't dress like this anymore? I mean, the big wig... You know, you walk into court for a traffic violation and the judge looks down at you and says, how do you plead? Uh, Your Honor, I'm I'm so sorry. Your wig was so loud. I I couldn't hear what you were saying. As an attorney, I'd advise you not to say that um, if you ever find yourself in, in that situation. But Blackstone had a very famous work called Commentaries on the Laws of England, and this is where he kind of explains what this phrase had meant for at least the last 200 years, if not longer. So um, if we can go to the next slide, please. I've got three points in your handout. Um, and I made the rookie mistake of not putting the answers up here <laughs> on the screen, so I'll just give them to you. Um, sorry, Jesus died for my sins too, and that's, that's one of them, so I'm sorry. Um, 
But there are three points. The first, uh, the law of nature means the will of God for man. That's what it meant according to Blackstone. It's the will of God for man. Here's what he said in uh, his commentaries on the law of England. He said, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. All right, so paraphrased, Blackstone, for him, it was very simple. God made us, therefore, he rules us, he governs us. And there are certain rules that he expects us to follow, and that's what we call the law of nature, all right? So this is not just an abstract philosophical concept. It really means that God's in charge and we have to do things his way. Um, Blackstone called this the law of nature because uh, it was accessible through reason, all right? And, and that's biblical. Um, there, there are a few scripture references I'm going to give you here that are not necessarily in your notes, but you might just want to jot down the references. In Romans 1, um, Paul talked about how God revealed himself through creation and through what's been made so that man is without excuse. And likewise, in, in Romans 2, he talked about how the law is written on our hearts. So, you know, even without the Bible, God has still uh, revealed himself through what's been made, uh, through, through nature, if you will. So, so far, this is pretty biblical. This is what uh, theologians call general revelation. So that's, that's point number one about the law of nature. It's the will of God for man. It's accessible through reason and, and studying creation. But Blackstone realized there's a problem. See, we, li- we have a sin nature, and we live in a fallen world. So because of that, our reason doesn't always cut it. We get things pretty wrong sometimes. So because of that, God revealed uh, his will through another way, and that's through the scriptures. So you'll see on the next slide here. So point, point number two, God revealed these laws through the scriptures. Uh, I'm sorry, God revealed these laws through reason and through the scriptures, uh, which is also called the law of God. Sometimes... Um, that's also called the revealed law or the divine law, but the law of God, that's the last blank on point number two. Blackstone went to say, this, as in our fallen reason and our, our fallen nature, has given manifold occasion for the benign interposition of divine providence, which into the compassion, the frailty, the imperfection, and the blindness of human reason hath been pleased at sundry times and divers manners. That, that's a reference to uh, Hebrews 1 in the King James, by the way. Uh, to discover and enforce his laws by an immediate and direct revelation. The doctrines thus delivered we call the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. So again, because man is fallen, God says, hey, I understand you're not always going to get it, so I'm going to give it to you in writing. So what we see in the Bible, the Bible is the law of nature in writing. All right. So, th- so now with that background in mind, this phrase, laws of nature and of nature's God, is, is this making a little bit more sense now? Seeing that this isn't just this general deistic concept of a general God who sort of made the world and walked away. No, no, no. The founders believed very heavily that God was very... Uh, uh, he, he was very much involved in our affairs and that he gave us uh, what he expected of us in writing, and that's in the Bible. And point number three, the laws of nature and of nature's God supersede inconsistent human laws. If you guys have read the Declaration of Independence, I mean, you know that that's really what the whole thing comes down to. They believe that because God gave us uh, certain rights, which were based on his law, when the government goes far beyond that, it's our, you know, it's our... Uh, right to say, listen, we're sorry, we're not putting up with this anymore, and we're breaking away. Blackstone said, upon these two laws, the law of reason and the, or, I'm sorry, the law of nature and the law of revelation, all right, or as the declaration says, the law of nature and the law of nature is God, depend all human laws, 
That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Wow. So going back to that phrase, law of nature and nature's God in the Declaration now, does that pack a little bit more of a punch now that you understand what it means? This phrase is not just a reference to a generic God or generic natural law. It's a recognition of the God of the Bible and a declaration that his laws are superior to man's. Guys, y'all got to give me a Pentecostal amen or an Episcopalian head nod or something because that's some powerful stuff right there, all right? Praise God. See, God is still on his throne. And because of that, he rules the world his way. He hasn't just backed off and left everything up to us. And as I'm going to get into in a minute, he blesses those who honor him and uh, he, he curses those who push him away. But if law of nature and nature's God means what, you know, I said it does a minute ago, some of you may be wondering, well, why haven't I heard that before? Well, it's, part of the problem is this stuff just isn't taught anymore. Um, this was pretty common, this is pretty commonly taught in schools up until around uh, shortly after the Civil War. That's kind of when Darwinism hit, and, and academia had been longing for an excuse to get away from God for a long time, and that was their chance. Um, so you kind of need to go back to some uh, primary sources to figure this stuff out. Um, just to give you an illustration of how this can go over our heads sometimes. Back in 2004, I went on a mission trip to England, and um, while I was there, I had a chance to see a Shakespeare play in the theater. Um, and I was excited because, you know, I, I wasn't really that much into plays, but it's Shakespeare, and I'm in England, and I get to see some of this stuff firsthand. So we went into the theater, we sat down, and, you know, we were, we're going to see Macbeth. Yeah, I had heard of Macbeth. I had no idea what it was about, but, you know, the, the actors came out. They went back and forth. It looked very dramatic and very intense, and, and I could tell this required excellence, but, y'all, to this day, I, I have no idea what happened in that play. <laughs> Just went over my head. And I felt kind of bad about it, but then I looked over at our mission trip leader, and he was out cold. Token Americans falling asleep in a Shakespeare play in England. That was, that was bad. But, you know, but if Shakespeare was such a brilliant writer, and if this was such a great play, then why am I lost, and why is my mission trip leader fast asleep? It's because so many of the things that Shakespeare said, you know, we just don't use those, those phrases or some of those words in the common dialect anymore. And so we, we miss uh, how powerful it can be, and it just goes over our heads. Same thing with the Declaration of Independence. Um, but hopefully, just knowing what that means can help reassure you that, you know, Christianity was still the reigning paradigm um, at, at the time of our founding. So like my dad said, um, I believe God blessed us because we had such a godly, uh, godly founding. And, and we got off to such a great start. He's still on his throne, and he blesses those who uh, obey him. And I believe that's why we're so blessed. If we go to the, yeah, the scripture here, um, we got a verse from Proverbs. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. There are tons of verses throughout the Bible, especially in Psalms and Proverbs, that reflect the same idea. So I just gave you one of them. But I think we can all agree that God blesses the righteous and he, he punishes the wicked. Um, look, at, uh, look at what he said to Israel in, in Deuteronomy 11. He said, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandment of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you by following other gods which you, do, which you have not known. Um, the... Uh, 
God's in that passage doesn't necessarily mean Allah or Baal or somebody like that. It's anything else before you put the living God. Um, and I think we have a lot of those in our society today. Um, and we keep pushing them away with so many things that we're doing. And as Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. He's only going to hold off so long uh, before he starts judging us. And I find that very scary. So that's the bad news. Well, the question is, is there any good news? Yes, I believe there is. And if you want it in one word, it's repentance. That's the next point in your, um, in, in your slide. Uh, I'm sorry, in your handout. Um, as you'll see on the next slide, uh, we got a picture here of um, the Founding Fathers uh, praying um, at the, uh, I believe this was the, the Constitutional Convention. Benjamin Franklin adjured uh, the convention when everything was about to fall apart that one of the reasons why things weren't going so well is they, they didn't pray at all during the convention. But once they came back to God uh, and started seeking him, everything kind of came together. And we have now the country that we do because of that. Well, I think the same principle applies here. Let's go to Second Chronicles 7.14. Um, this is what God told Israel, but I believe this applies as well to any nation that's willing to come back to him. God said to Israel, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their, I will heal their land. You know, this is God's heart. We, we see this, you know, in the gospel, for instance. Despite the fact that we've all done bad things, God still sent a son to rescue us, and he offers eternal life to anybody who's going to come to him and take it. All right, I believe the same, the same thing is, is true of a nation. So breaking this verse down into four things, four steps I see in there. Step number one is if you want to come back to God and you want to be healed as a nation, the first thing you have to do is become God's people, all right? The, the verse said, if my people who are called by my name, and it goes on. Well, back then that was Old Testament Israel, but who are his people today? It's a church. It's a people that have called on Jesus Christ to be saved from their sins and have been born again and been brought into a relationship with him. So if there are any of you uh, who are here today who haven't done that, that's where, that's where all this has to start. Um, it's, it's like uh, showing up in court and, and over a fine that you can't possibly pay back. All right? And that's, that's what sin has done to all of us. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Um, in one way or another, all of us have stumbled, have fallen, and really we can't make up for the stuff that we've done. So if you show up in court and you have this, this fine that you can't possibly pay back, one of two things is going to happen. Either the hammer is going to fall and it's going to ruin you, or number two, somebody else can pay it for you. And that's what God did when he sent Jesus to save us from our sins. When he died on that cross, he paid back that debt that we couldn't possibly pay, and now he's offering you a way out for free if you'll take it. So if you're here today and you've never done that, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day where you've got to come to him and say, Lord, I want you to pay for, uh, thank you for paying for my sins. I want to receive that and here's my life in return. And if you believe, if you do that, your sins are forgiven and you get adopted into God's family and become part of his people. Now, if you've already done that, then I think the next step for us is help is helping other people become part of God's people, all right? Go witness, go share Christ, go share, share the gospel. Um, you know, I, I believe with all my heart that uh, re repentance is possible, revival is possible, and if we see that, uh, I think America's best days could still be ahead of her. But uh, with, with as many problems as we have, I really think the only real solution is, is 
to have a third great awakening in the United States. But if we do that, I think uh, the righteousness of the people, like a tsunami, is just going to come in and sweep out all the sin and all the mess and all the institutional problems that we have. But that can only happen if we come back to God and become part of his people. So one of the best things you can do to help uh, save the country that you love is go share Christ. I think that's really our last best hope as a nation. All right, the second thing we got to do, humble yourselves and pray, all right? It's not maybe just enough to come back and say, all right, I receive Christ and then, you know, never walk with him again. Thank you, Lord, for my get-out-of-hell-free ticket, and then I'm, you know, off doing my own thing again. No, no, no. This involves coming back to God and humbling yourself, realizing he's in charge, we're not, all right? That involves praying for forgiveness, both for ourselves and for, uh, for our nation. Um, another thing this involves is praying for our nation's leaders, uh, as Dad mentioned, I, I graduated from uh, from law school at a Christian college, and before that, in in college, I was um, uh, I was a government major, you know, or political science, depending on what you want to call it, and, and so that meant that meant that. Um, you know, mom and dad paid a lot of money so I could sit around and critique what everybody was doing wrong, and of course, I had all the answers, right? You know, <laughs> but uh, probably about halfway through my college career, you know, as I was just so immersed in all this, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he said, Matt, how often are you praying for those in authority? <laughs> you know, immediately, First uh, Timothy 2 came to mind where uh, Paul told Timothy to command everybody to be praying for rulers and all those in authority so that we can live uh, a godly life um, in, in, in tranquility. And so I was convicted at that time. I, I was complaining about my leaders all the time, but I wasn't doing anything to pray for them. But guys, if, if the church, uh, I believe if we prayed for our leaders as much as we complained about them, our country would be in a lot better shape than it is, all right? So if, if we're not in the habit of praying for our leaders, we need to start doing that right now. Um, this doesn't need to, you know, if you haven't done this before, uh, we don't really need to start off setting the bar incredibly high, but just make a commitment for maybe one minute a day to be praying for your leaders. You do that consistently, and we get the whole church in on that. We're going to start seeing a big difference, okay? All right, the third thing we need to do is to turn from sin. All right, it's not enough to you say that you're following Jesus, but still be stuck in sin. All right, that's the whole point of Romans 6. You know, we died to sin, but now we live, uh, n- now we live for the Lord. So if there's anything in here today, if you're a believer where, you know, you've been stuck in a sin that's been unconfessed, now's the time to, uh, now's the time to confess it and turn from it. All right? You know, we all stumble in many ways, me especially. Um, but like Jesus said, we can't take the, pl- the, the plank out of, uh, I'm sorry, we can't take the speck out of somebody else's eye while we still have a plank in ours. Um, So we need to, you know, clean ourselves up, and then we can be a help to the rest of the nation with getting itself cleaned up. Um, And then as much as we're involved in, uh, you know, politics and any influence that we can have on on the nation, we need to vote for godly leaders who are going to do the same to turn our our nation away from sin. Um, And then finally, the last thing we got to do is seek God. God told Jeremiah, uh, you, will seek, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. All right? It's not just enough to say, God bless America and a few stump speeches or on a 4th of July celebration. We really got to go after him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. But here's the beautiful part. If we do this, look what God promised. He said, if you do these things, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Because I, I do believe that we are in the end times, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the rapture of the tribulation is going to strike tomorrow, okay? I still believe that America's best days could still be ahead of her until the very last appointed time. And we can get there. 
but it involves repentance and it involves, revival, involves revival, and we got to fight for it, most especially on our knees. Just in closing, um, you know, Ronald Reagan had a couple quotes that I thought were appropriate. He said, America is great because America is good, but if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And we are losing our goodness as we go on. We got to get that turned around. And he also said, if we ever forget that we're a nation under God, we will be a nation gone under. But guys, if we're praying for our country, if we're getting ourselves cleaned up, and we're pursuing righteousness as a country, then we can turn around, we can be healed, and I believe with all my heart that this country that I love so much can go on and can still thrive in ways that it never has before. But that's got to start with us. Let's pray it out. Father God, thank you so much for uh, your, your grace and your love and, and your patience. Lord, we have so many problems. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for uh, you know, any, um, any involvement that we've had in this, either by complacency or by being active. And today, we just want to lay that before you and, and say we're sorry, and we want to turn away from that. Lord, we pray for our nation and for our leaders, God, that we would have people who, who rule righteously and in the fear of God, people that you delight in and people that you can bless. Lord, we're so blessed to live in America, in a country that's so free and so prosperous and, and has been so good for much of his existence. But I think I speak for all of us when I say that we're grieved because we are losing it. So Lord, we just lay ourselves before you. We pray that you have mercy on this great nation. We pray that you would bring us back to Jesus, that you would clean us up, that we would have a third great awakening in this United States and that when we, when we turn from sin and when we turn to you, that you would hear from heaven, that you would forgive our sin and that you would heal our land. Lord, we love you. We thank you for hearing and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.